Welcome to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. In this series from DLA Piper, we explore how infrastructure, transport and construction are adjusting to a post-COVID-19 world. We examine the biggest challenges ahead and how businesses must evolve to meet them, both in the short and in the longer term. In each episode, you get the latest views and insights from DLA Piper's leading lawyers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this uh, DLA Piper podcast. Today, we're going to focus on the construction sector and the impact of uh, COVID on the construction sector, particularly in the United Kingdom and UAE, but also more broadly. My name is Paul Giles. I am a construction disputes partner uh, in the United Kingdom, and I also lead the construction part of the ICT sector at DLA Piper. I'm joined today by Alison Fagan. Hello. Alison heads our infrastructure funds, part of the ICT sector at DLA Piper. I'm also joined by Susanna Newbolt, who heads our construction disputes practice in Dubai and the UAE. Hello. Before we get into how COVID-19 has changed things, we wanted to touch on a little bit of context. So we're going to start with you, Susanna. Could you tell us about some of the key features and perhaps some of the key challenges of the construction sector faced before COVID-19 hit us earlier this year? Thanks, Paul. Before COVID-19, the construction industry in the Middle East was an industry in trouble. We, DLA Piper, issued a report into the industry at the end of 2018. Many of those problems persisted to um, the beginning of 2020 pre-COVID. And those sorts of issues that that report identifies were low barriers of entry to the market, the lower standards of things like governance, anti-bribery and corruption, modern slavery, um, meaning an unbalanced or unequal playing field between international contractors and local contractors, and little evolution of procurement methods. So meaning most things were still done on a sort of traditional build basis. All of those things together, meaning that typically projects um, ended up in a race to the bottom in terms of pricing. We saw further problems at the delivery um, operational stage because of an unprecedented level of variations. Um, Again, because projects were being let on a traditional basis, but with inadequate design having been done at the the stage it was procured. Um, And then those variations not being paid for or any extensions of time given. The overall result of all of that um, was that we were already seeing a huge amount of high value disputes. We were seeing international contractors leaving the market or scaling back their operations. And we were told by one main contractor that they could expect to see up to five of their suppliers or subcontractors become insolvent during the course of a project. It's interesting, actually, because... So just listening to some of the key themes that you identified there, the low barriers to entry, high levels of insolvency, uh, inappropriate balance of risk through the procurement process and a a preponderance to lowest price wins on on tenders. Actually, being controversial for a minute, you could say uh, the UK market and many other international markets have those same problems. They may consider themselves to be more mature in the way they approach some of those issues. But those are key themes, I think, internationally. And the UK has uh, looked at uh, how it it can change those processes numerous times over the years, with various reports, to varying degrees of success, probably. Go on, Susanna. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. I think that that has been seen in the UK and indeed other places over the over the world. I think one of the challenges we face in this region um, is that things haven't evolved to address those issues. So what we don't have in this region is a construction act. We don't have a law that outlaws paid when paid, for example, um, which puts a lot of pressure on the supply chain, hence the insolvencies. And we don't have a quick method of dispute resolution available like adjudication to unlock um, payment cash flow problems throughout the construction process. So, you know, those those things very much do cause a lot of pressure on the industry and the players in it. So probably a nice segue to you, Ali, in terms of uh, Susanna just highlighting some of the good things about the industry in the UK. What sort of key themes or features uh, can you tell us about the construction industry? And your focus in particular, I guess, on PPP, PFI market um, within the UK uh, construction sector. Yeah, I think um, I have a more positive picture to to set the scene, I think, than, than Susanna just highlighted for the Middle East um, in terms of PPP and PFI, certainly in the UK, pre-COVID. Um, I think it was pretty positive. There were lots of infrastructure funds seeking opportunities and the projects themselves were in a relatively stable position, um, both in terms of construction phase and operations phase. Um, things were ticking along quite nicely, with the odd exception, of course, but on the whole, the industry was in pretty good shape. Um, I think the two things that were the the biggest concern for particularly the infrastructure funds was the first, there was a definite pipeline needed. Um, There was a real drive for investment and a real desire to invest in big, good infrastructure projects in the UK, um, but the government hadn't released a strong pipeline and that was restricting the ability of the funds to actually get involved in projects. Secondly, there was a concern pre-COVID about political instability and in particular the prospect of a Corbyn government and what impact that might have on both current projects and future projects, but that's largely been addressed irrespective of COVID. So um, a slightly different picture, I think, in PPP because it was a more positive one with less of the um, ups and downs that have been highlighted from the Middle East. So that was the easy bit. Now, let's stick with you, Ali, uh, for the moment. Then, so, so what's changed post-COVID in the UK uh, and uh, within that PPP market in particular? So I've been thinking about this in preparation. And I have to say that at the moment... I'm pleased. I'm pleased to hear <laughs> that. I have to say at the moment, I think we're in a period of, of reactive triage. Um, so not a great deal has changed in terms of the claims sector. I think everybody is assessing where they are with their projects, taking stock, um, triaging any that are in urgent need of um, a a focus or some assistance or or highly problematic projects. Um, And are really, I think, historic, well, in the last few months, have been waiting for a return to normal. Um, That's certainly been my experience in the past few months. I must say, more recently, I think we're entering a transition phase where people are realising that this is... a position where the return to normal um, isn't going to happen and we're going to be living in a different situation. So there's a lot more consideration now of um, things like what is safe real estate, what we need to do to infrastructure or with infrastructure to make it safe in our new world. 
what changes in behaviour people may experience or, or feel, both in terms of our own personnel within the industry, but also users of the infrastructure that we build um, and how the assets themselves are going to have to flex or change to adapt to that change in behaviour. Um, and also um, a key one I think that we're starting to see play out or certainly is starting to get more consideration is um, geopolitical restrictions and how that might impact upon both um, projects in the construction phase, but also in the operations phase and what impact that might have on supply chain. So in terms of what has changed, going back to your, your original question, probably not that much just at this point in time, but I think it's going to change quite quickly in the next six to 12 months. And from what you've just said, Ali, I think the key thing that jumped out to me is that is almost it's, it's users of infrastructure and construction that kind of drive that change. So it's what does the world look like in the, in the years to come, uh, which I guess, so take a simple example, Office and office occupancy might draw, you know, the the the, uh, I suppose the the occupancy levels within a building might change the way in which designs are produced, the amount of, uh, that people come into the office as opposed to your fa- traditional five day working week model turns into a two to three day working week model. All of those sort of things will change, I, I guess, future in- infrastructure. But that seems a bit remote at the moment. It's long term change, that isn't it? I think potentially in that example it is, but if you look at, for example, the healthcare sector and the footprint of how healthcare assets are going are currently being used or are going to be used in the relatively short term, that's already changed in terms of just local examples like your GP surgery now is not open access into a big atrium where people then are called from the atrium into individual treatment rooms and the like. Um, it's a very different experience. You know, people wait in their cars, they're called in, you go in through side entrances, etc. And that's a very micro-level example. If you look at schools, the way we're using um, PPP schools at the moment, phasing people in and out, different entrances, eg- exits, um, different infrastructure support that's needed, um, I think that already has changed. So I think those things are already starting to be done operationally, and it's a case of, of the the breadth of that change will only increase, I think. One final question on, on uh, for you, Ali, then just before we bring in Suzanne on the same, same point. So those changes will have an impact upon design, which may have an impact upon on cost overall. But actually, I mean, some of those things we've talked about, perhaps wouldn't it? It's just a different way of doing things and a different design to try and fit that new, uh, I'm not going to say new normal. (laughs) New um, arrangement. Yeah, the new arrangement of of how we live our lives going forward. Yeah, and I don't think anyone understands fully the cost impact of those changes as yet. And I don't think we can, because I think there'll be a, a reset of the use of real estate. But I don't think, which we probably could predict, But I think the bit we can't yet predict is the change in people's behaviours and how people are going to feel about using infrastructure and therefore the way they will need to flex. So I think there are still too many moving parts um, in this formula that we can't yet pin down. So I don't think we could predict what's going to kick out at the end of the formula in cold, hard cash terms just yet. Uh, Susanna, over to you, Middle East. Uh, what's, What's changed? What's changing? What's the picture like there? I think what we saw in the Middle East was a more immediate reaction. Um, So we immediately saw 
projects put on hold. We saw contractors being asked to cut prices, even on on projects that were undergoing construction, um, and consultants asked to um, too. So quite a dramatic reaction to COVID. Um, we have seen the inevitable raft of force majeure notices and some claims under the contracts as well. And inevitably, almost, um, employers, developers reluctant to deal with those without knowing what the eventual impact will be on time and cost. So, you know, I think we're looking at those seeing that there's quite a high likelihood that in time we will see a number of disputes arising out of those. There has been some reports of a collaborative approach to sharing of risk um, arising from COVID-19, but there have been few and far between. Um, and one a particular example that uh, sticks in my mind is of a project in Saudi Arabia um, that moved to a cost reimbursable payment scheme to manage the, the process following um, COVID-19, which seems a, a you know a sensible collaborative approach in some respects to deal with the issue um, but I think that was fairly isolated because it was a project that had um, very particular delivery time delivery pressure um, so I think in the immediate we probably saw a lot more of a dramatic reaction um, to COVID. Again that's an interesting feature to the different ways different parts of the world have responded to COVID and and construction seems to have been an example of one of the sectors that governments around the world have sought to try and find a way to keep things going within the construction sector because it's such a large sector and in the in the UK I think you know in theory we were never supposed to stop work on construction sites that definitely did happen in some places and around the world the picture varied hugely in the first couple of months at least post sort of February, March time. And now I think most governments seem to accept that construction really should be a, a force for good in the economy to try and drive economies, keep them going and ticking over in, in, in a scenario where other parts of the economy can't continue in the way that they, they, they always used to. I don't actually know the answer to this and I usually never ask a question <laughs> unless I know the answer. What happened in the Middle East, Susanna, initially, you know, in terms of government regulation? The reaction did vary from um, country to country. In the main, things did continue, whether they were supposed to continue or not. There were various countries that issued a closure for construction sites, save for specific types of project. And it's surprising how many fell within those specific types of projects. Um, So a lot of construction did carry on to the extent it was able to, um, but we suffered from various difficulties with actually COVID cases um, hitting and running through labour camps. And then also some of the ability to move people. Um, So, I mean, the UAE is a really good example of that. Um, A lot of labour camps are based around the Emirates of Abu Dhabi and they would travel from there to construction sites in Dubai, um, but the border was closed. So you then couldn't bus your labourers in to work on site. So there were factors that caused it to slow or stop. But in the main, there was little um, wholesale closure of sites. I'm just going to use this opportunity to plug 
a DLA product uh, on our website, we produced a, a global construction guide. As we started to come out of lockdown, certainly in, in Europe, we produced a guide of, I think, around about 35, 36 countries of what was happening in the construction sector in each of those countries. And and the one thing that was was consistent was that the approaches of different governments was inconsistent. There was no one-size-fits-all fit, approach. And there was a real variance as to what happened initially versus what's happened going forwards and, and sort of six, seven months in. The picture generally seems to be consistent that people want construction projects built. People want to use that as a driver for the economy. So segueing nicely into, into the next question I have for you guys, the impact on some sectors uh, and how that impacts uh, construction has been more pronounced than others, I think, in, in different parts of the world. So the investment to, to get projects up and running or to keep projects going uh, has changed and uh, either projects are no longer seen as financially viable or there's you know, perhaps a, a need to pause things just whilst, I suppose, the, the, the new economic reality sets in. Uh, Susanna, I suppose, when I think Middle East, I also think oil and gas, big area uh, for development. Oil and gas has been hit particularly hard, not just by COVID, but the massive drop in oil prices, which came around about the same sort of time as COVID hit. What sectors have you seen really suffer in the Middle East? And, and, and do you think that's going to change the way construction projects are, are promoted? Yeah, definitely the oil and gas sector. Um, we've seen hits, and as you said, not just by COVID, but a sub $50 per barrel oil price. Um, and very early on in the process, we saw projects shelved um, that we would have expected to be online by now. Um, but it's not just oil and gas sector. Uh, the region is seen very much as a, an aviation hub. It's a, a, the the um, transit place between east and west for, for many passengers coming through. Um, now, many of the GCC countries had already invested in airport infrastructure. There's a lot of new airports around the region, um, but there were still more airports to come online and not least domestic airports as well, uh, which I think we can probably expect to be on hold now. Dubai, for example, also relies heavily on tourism. So that's a sector that's that's been hit. Um, and I think we can probably expect to see um, a decline in spend for construction um, in the tourism sector. Although, um, because Expo 2020 has been delayed until next year, and because some of the projects, not necessarily those directly around the Expo site, but other projects around um, the city that were timed to coincide with Expo, are perhaps delayed, the fact that they're ongoing may mask to some extent that sort of decline in construction um, relating to tourism. And I think we also have to think about the fact that many of the GCC countries have got high expatriate populations. And um, what we are seeing is that people are losing their jobs, so they're leaving um, the UAE, uh, and people are making starting to make choices to leave the UAE as well. Um, inevitably, when you anywhere with expatriates and they're parted from families and things for any length of time, they start to reconsider um, whether that's where they want to be in the future. Um, and I think that possible population shrinkage um, and shift in demographic as well may dictate what the um, 
like healthcare and education sectors look like going forward. Touching on then what what's it going to look like going forwards, um, and what are we starting to see in terms of the mood and discussions? Um, we are seeing a lot of discussion around PPP. Um, we had started to see an uptick in, in interest in PPP just before COVID hit. And that's a shift for us from what has historically been PPP limited to power and water um, to look starting to look at PPP more seriously um, for other infrastructure projects. So, uh, Ali, a couple of quick fire questions for you then, uh, just following on from Susanna's answers. Um, firstly, PPP or three P's over in the um, over in the States, they seem to use uh, three P's all the time. Is it, or is it P3. correct to say three P's? P3. Or P3. Three P's. PPP. PFI. Which, which one is it? <laughs> Any or all. This is a critical question, <laughs> by the way. Any or all. I go PPP, but I, I, okay. I, I am partial to P3 also, so... And uh, so, with your work with the infra funds, are, are they are they looking to change anything about the way that where they're doing things either in the UK or internationally? Are they looking to export, you know, street lighting PPPs all over the world? What's the what's the plan? Yeah, I think I think exactly as you say. I think the expansion of PPP as a model um, is is a definite focus, both in terms of its ability to provide stability um, in a relatively uncertain world, um, but also that collaborative element of of infrastructure um, being formalised in a way that allows for more and better investment. So absolutely, there's there's plenty of investment opportunities out there. Um, The other things I think they're looking at are the uncertainty of litigation post-COVID, because I think that is, is a certain a problem that we all know is going to exist um, wherever there was certainty in litigation, which which some people may say was limited, um, it's going to be even less now, I think. Um, there's going to be more regulation and that's going to need to be looked at and addressed in terms of risk balance. Um, there's ob- the obvious financial uncertainty of contracting parties or states, so that will be considered. Um, and cross-border supply chain issues are really relevant in PPP. So um, I think there will be a lot more PPP, there's certainly investment there, but there's a very high level of risk awareness and, and trying to make these projects bankable in terms of an uncertain position is going to be the key. It's definitely doable and it will happen, um, but it might just be a slightly more complex process um, than it was pre-COVID. I suppose one thing hasn't changed for the funds, they've still got money to spend and the world, all parts of the world, developed and underdeveloped, still have a need for all types of infrastructure, really, but social infrastructure, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's a huge global infrastructure gap, um, and that's a, a known fact. It's massive, and the funds have um, the ability to help bridge that. And there is no way of bridging that gap without infrastructure investment from from funds. So it may be more tricky to make the stars align in a way to deliver the projects, but ultimately it will happen because it's an absolute necessity for the development of global society. So we're all, three of us, actually disputes lawyers uh, by practice. And uh, at the moment, you can't go on the internet uh, without seeing some webinar on COVID-related claims in some sort of aspect on construction projects. My inbox is clogged up with uh, invitations to them from all manner of different angles, consultants, barristers, 
what's the picture, uh, I wonder, in terms of claims uh, in your respective uh, jurisdictions uh, for COVID-related issues at the moment? Uh, Ali, you go first. There aren't many, is is the short answer. I think that at the moment there aren't a huge amount of COVID-specific claims that are being pursued. There's very, very few. I think only two have made it through the court system. Um, I was at uh, Keating Chambers, did a seminar this morning and, and ran a poll, and there was a stat that 95% of lawyers who attended that seminar in it, with a preeminent um, construction set hadn't dealt with any COVID-related claims at the moment. Um, so, What do you mean by that? Do you mean haven't prosecuted them through a formal process or haven't been consulted about them? Haven't prosecuted them through a formal process. Okay, okay. So I think, and that tallies with my own experience, which is we are advising on lots of COVID-related issues, lots of COVID-related problems, but they've not yet made it through to a, a formal claim. And I feel that we're getting a build-up of um, disputes stacking up um, that will come down as and when um, things become a little bit more normal, shall I say. Um, I think people are being very accommodating of each other at present and are trying to dig in and get jobs done, get projects closed, get, get construction delivered, keep projects operating successfully. But ultimately, someone's going to have to pay for the inevitable costs that will um, arise as a result. So my sense is it's all the claims are all there, but they've not yet pushed through into formal process and that will come probably in Q1 or Q2 next year. Susanna, claims coming on the horizon, already there? Very much the same as, as Ali, it's too early. Um, we are, we, we're seeing the claims under the contract, um, but it's too early for them to turn into formal claims and we expect those to come through as the projects come to an end uh, and people know what their, their exposure is to cost. Um, we have seen slight increase in claims, but I think that that's a result of seven months of people being in survival mode. And we're just seeing those claims come, um, which will eventually include, no doubt, um, COVID aspects as well. But at the moment, they're not being brought for that reason. Yeah. Quite interesting, really, because I think everyone, well, initially, most commentators would say this is going to cause a load of claims. And, and I think most people expected that to follow in the first sort of six months. But... I know internally at DLA, we kind of talked always about the second six months being more likely to see issues arising. That certainly seems to come to, to pass. It's, it's the, those first few claims that are going to really start coming through. And then you wonder whether or not that might take on a bit of a snowball effect uh, with others following suit. Certainly in the UK with a common law system, if you get some judgments on uh, what some of the standard form clauses might mean, that might result in some additional uh, cases, both for within the UK and I guess where, where English law might apply. Um, so, second wave, which is now hitting home in Europe, uh, certainly uh, other parts of the world. I think even uh, maybe Iran are saying they're in a third uh, third wave scenario. Um, are you expecting anything to change? Quick fire answers to this one. Um, more of the same in terms of what you've already touched on or, or, or do you think things will uh, perhaps become more difficult, maybe more insolvencies, that sort of thing? Uh, Susanna? 
I think we are going to see insolvencies, but I think that the seeds have been sown for those already. Um, it won't be caused necessarily by a second wave of COVID because I think the construction um, sites are going to survive this much better. Um, we know what to expect this time. Um, you know, things have already been put in place to work around. Um, so I think the actual impact of a second wave will be less. Um, but I think insolvencies are already coming. Ali, UK PPP? Yeah, I think PPP, it's a very resilient model. So it's it's reacted and, and um, responded to the first wave. It will do exactly the same with the second wave. You know, projects will continue to close. Projects will continue to operate. Um, there will just be an extension, I think, of this triage moratorium situation that we're in where things that can get resolved easily will um, and the more complex things will be held over um, and, and pushed out a little bit until people can um, have the time and resource to deal with them but I think operationally on the ground I, I don't think anything will change. So we're nearly up to the sort of time we wanted to, to use for this slot. The benefit of being the question master or chair, I prefer chair, uh, is I get to ask the final question and don't have to answer it myself. So one prediction from each of you as to what the long-term effect on construction might be um, post-COVID. Uh, I made a couple of notes. Increased technology, maybe. Less movement of international labour. Um, less labour, generally, um, if the technology side increases. Your thoughts, one answer, one prediction. Go on, Ali. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just building on what you said there in terms of technology, I think there will be a change in the prevalence of and the role of the technology titans, so the big tech companies. I think they will become more involved in infrastructure. Um, their influence isn't restricted as much by local regulation or by... Um, geopolitical constraints they offer more flexibility and I think they could be really strong players in the infrastructure market so I think um, I would anticipate seeing more of the tech titans within the ICT sector Susanna I'm going to go for modular construction we're going to see far more um, prefab um, elements of construction so that we can do things remote from sites better, more control over the quality, um, quick assembly, fewer labourers required, and managing social social distancing as well. You've already seen a bit of that in the Middle East, yeah? To some extent, um, there's a lot of focus on it in, in the giga projects in Saudi. Um, so yes, we are starting to see some movement towards that, um, but there's also start the other end of the spectrum. Um, which is you know, quite behind in those sorts of advances. So thank you, Ali and Susanna, for your time and your insights. Uh, very interesting commentary on uh, what you see as the changes in the construction industry going forward. For all of our listeners, hope you enjoyed that, found it interesting. And if you would like to talk to uh, either me, Ali or Susanna about any of the issues we've touched on today, then please feel free to get in touch via the website, email social media that was Paul Giles speaking to Alison Fagan and Susanna Niebold any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as of the date of recording 
This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode.